Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Now, if we go right back to the beginning of Genesis, God wanted many spiritual children, which is why he said to Adam and Eve, I want you to go and multiply. Isn't that what he said? And be fruitful and fill the earth. He wants many spiritual children. Uh, So he commanded Adam and Eve to do that. However, when God tested them for love and obedience, we talked about that, they failed. We We had an entire message on that. Evil entered the world. Death and decay affected every aspect of life. And God was, but God wasn't shocked by any of it. He, uh, and, and he had a plan to restore humanity to their original position. God covenanted with Adam and Eve. Remember, we called it the Edenic covenant. To raise a male seed from Eve who would crush the serpent's head, and bring judgment on the serpent and all his evil followers. He said that's coming one day. So there's going to be enmity between two lines until that time. That's what he said in Genesis 3.15. The seed would defeat the serpent on behalf of Eve's seed, uh, you know, the the one line on, on behalf of the other, just like David, an Israelite, defeated Goliath on behalf of all Israelites. Correct? We talked about that. The covenant passed on down through Noah and Shem, and, you know, the ages rolled on, and everybody's looking for the promised seed. And uh, finally, the covenant reached Abraham, with whom God made the Abrahamic covenant, or the promise. Uh, came down to him, which was really an expansion of the initial Edenic covenant, uh, which had been just very short and concise. It was an embryo form of what God was going to do. God would create a great nation. Now, here, here it is. Remember, we said there was nine promises, but we said that there was four chief promises in the Abrahamic covenant, Correct? Now, can you help me with that? What were the four? The first one was a great... Exactly. And great meant righteous. Exactly. Not just a big nation. It was a righteous. It was going to be a great nation in the eyes of the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation. The second thing is this nation would be given land, exactly, in which they could live, and so that they could be a... Exactly, so they could be a blessing to the nations. And so those were three chief promises of the Abrahamic covenant, which was an expansion of the Edenic covenant. And we're going to get to the fourth one in just a moment. And God would do that, and it would be... So when God delivered Abraham's descendants from Egypt, he made the Mosaic covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Remember, he brought them out of Egypt, then he gathered them around Mount Sinai, and he made a covenant with the entire nation, the Mosaic Covenant. And he promised to bring them into the promised land and to be their God. True? The covenant was conditional. To remain in the land, they had to love and obey God. If they followed other gods, they would be, what? Expelled just like the nations that they had expelled. And remember in that message there, we talked about how God was fair with dealing with the land and stuff. You can always go back to that. Because they didn't keep the Mosaic Covenant, they ceased to be a what? Nation. Therefore, they were expelled from the? And then they couldn't be a? To the? Do you see how the storyline's going? You see how important and how those promises within the covenant are linked? So, and uh, the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. God said he would keep his promises no matter what the people did. But the Mosaic covenant was conditional. If the people didn't obey God's law, they came under the curse of the Mosaic covenant, removing them from, because he said, on the one hand, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, another whole chapter, then here are the curses that will come. 
and uh, they would be removed from the land. They couldn't be a nation. So how would God reconcile those two covenants? On the one hand, he would do it alone, but on the other hand, um, uh, they had to keep the covenant. So the first solution was the Davidic covenant in which he promised to give them a divine king who would keep the conditions and law of the Mosaic covenant because he was Exactly, because he was righteous. He could keep it. So that was the fourth promise. Remember the seed is found in Genesis 3.15 to Eve, but the seed was also promised to who? Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. He, uh, and, and we spent at length and we unpacked that. It was a little bit technical there. But anyway, so we learned that the king was really the seed of Genesis 3.15 or the Edenic Covenant. So the promise of a seed and a divine king were really one and the same promise. It's the same person with different aspects and functions. Do you see that? He's wearing more than one hat, as we sometimes call it, right? Though none of Israel's kings could keep the Mosaic Covenant, God said that this divine seed king could, because he was righteous, which some of you said already, because he was divine, because who else can be righteous but who? God, exactly. So he was going to be divine, and we went through that, and he would have unlimited spirit anointing on him, and we discussed that. So the three key promises made to Abraham, which was a great what? who would live in the, and be a, to the nations, uh, would be attained by this seed king, which was the fourth promise, fourth, fourth chief promise of those nine. Those are, the, those are the four key ones. Further, he would rule over the whole earth, Delivering Israel from her enemies, crushing the world's tyrants, teaching the world God's ways, reigning justly and righteously, thereby ushering in peace forever. However, though the king would be righteous, there was a problem. What was the problem? Exactly. The people weren't righteous. So the king, because he's God, he's divine, he is righteous, and so he will keep the Mosaic covenant, and so God raises raises up this seed, that's the unconditional part of the Abrahamic covenant, and he's able to keep the conditions of the Mosaic covenant, which is remarkable. But the problem was the people. <laughs> you still had to solve that problem. And, uh, and, um, and, and so he would do, he would do that um, because they couldn't keep the Mosaic Covenant, he would have to fix them. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, remember, way back, I mean, I remember when we were talking about it and we just touched on it, and I thought, oh, we got a problem here. In Genesis 6 and then in 9, he's, or in, in, in Genesis 8, he says, the man's heart is evil right from childhood. And God said that before the flood, when he judged the flood, and after, because it was a heart problem, and that was the issue. So, be, uh, so the second solution was, not only was it going to have to be a righteous king, seed, or seed king, who could keep the um, covenants, but now you had to make the people righteous, and the new covenant was the second solution. The Davidic king, uh, uh, covenant was Solution number one, and the new covenant was solution number two. God promised to make the people righteous, or into, there's the great nation again, who would have the law written on their hearts, ensuring they would remain in the land and be a conduit for God to bless the nations. <clears throat> but how could God make them righteous? We discovered that the Davidic king was also a what? A priest after the order of Melchizedek. He was a king priest. That's what Melchizedek was, right? Uh, he, he was not after the order of 
Aaron. He was after the order of Melchizedek because he was both a king and a priest. And that was important. And um, Isaiah called him the servant of the Lord. He would make an offering, this, this king priest, Isaiah referred to as the servant of the Lord. And he would make an offering to God that would effectively blot out the people's sins. They had practical forgiveness, but they didn't have absolute forgiveness. They were waiting for an offering, a sacrifice that would give them absolute forgiveness. They just had temporary forgiveness. It was dependent on a great offering that would have to be made, and the offering was the priest himself. The king priest was going to have to offer himself, Isaiah 52 and 53. Thus the seed was a messianic king, messianic king, and he was a suffering servant all at the same time. Did you know that, uh, that in, in uh, some parts of Judaism, after, after the time of Christ, in the many centuries ago, some believed that they were going, because they could see that, and some rabbis actually proposed that there were two messiahs. One was a suffering servant, and the other one was the messianic king, because they just, they could not put these together. But we know from what the Old Testament scriptures say that it's one and the same person. True? And we, and we proved that as we uh, from the scriptures as we looked at it. So the new covenant promised that he would give them soft hearts that would be receptive and sensitive to God's word and will. Soft clay, remember we talked about how you could write on it. And lastly, the new covenant promised that this king, priest, servant of the Lord would give them the spirit empowering them to keep God's law. Now, who was this seed king, priest, servant who had accomplished all this? That's the question, right? J. Barton Payne found there were 103 direct messianic predictions in a remarkable 574 verses from 18 Old Testament books that pointed to Jesus. Now, we, we, we can't go through all that. Besides, there's a, there's a little bit of a problem sometimes when you just look at them like that. You miss the story. And so, I, what I've done for the sake of this message, I mean, this really should be a, a mini-series in itself. But for the sake of this message, I've chosen just a few key ones that will link us back to this story that we just told. Okay? That's what we're going to do. The first thing is, Jesus is the seed born of a virgin. Now, the seed of Eve hints at a virgin birth. I'll put enmity between, there's the Genesis 3.15 that we referred to, between you and the woman, between her, your seed and her seed. That's very significant. The verse emphasized the seed of the woman, not the seed of Adam. Now, the, in, in, in the Near East, uh, Eastern thought, the man's seed was considered most prominent for several reasons. First, the patriarchal society understood that one's status was determined by the relationship with the father, not with the mother. Second, all other seed promises in, in Scripture were given to men, like Abraham's seed, you know, uh, it talks about that, and da in, Gen in Genesis uh, uh, chapter 12. And also to David's seed in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you know, where we talked about the Davidic covenant. Third, the male was looked at as planting seed into the fertile ground of the woman's womb in which it would grow. So it was always referred to his seed, not her seed. Thus the emphasis of the seed of the woman is remarkably unusual. It hinted at a virgin birth, and Eve thought that, this, that the, the one conceived would be a God-man because of that. Now, second, uh, the seed of uh, Eve hints at the virgin birth, but Isaiah explicitly predicted a virgin birth. An alliance was struck. Now, he, here's, the, here's the context, okay? And, and by the way, I'm explaining some... Occasionally, I, I explain some difficult passages and say, oh, I have, like, who can, it, it, it matters. 
when you're reading the scriptures and it doesn't make sense and then you have an objector coming to you and saying, this, look at how ridiculous this is. So uh, I'm, I'm helping you even to solve some things even as we're discovering the beauty of, of who, we're, who this is pointing to. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, the context is this. You know where it says uh, a virgin will conceive and give you a son and all of that, right? Okay, just, now there's context there. There was an alliance um, struck between Rezin, king of Aram from Syria, and Pekah, king of Samaria, the northern kingdom. Remember we talked about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? They allied together against the southern kingdom of Judah, the king there whose name was Ahaz. Remember Ahaz, okay? These two came, and do you know why? Because they were mad at Ahaz for not aligning in a three-way alliance against the, the bigger threat, which was Assyria. So they were mad, and they retaliated against Ahaz. They came down south from the north. They came down south, and they were going to take him out and replace him with a king of their own, which, by the way, would have stopped the Davidic dynasty right there. Okay, so it was a threat. Isaiah invited Ahaz to ask for a sign that God would deliver them. Though Ahaz refused, you know, he sounded very spiritual. He said, I can't test God. This baloney. He was not really a God follower. Isaiah announced a sign the Lord himself had offered anyways. And here is the sign. And here's the problem. Two verses. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means? Exactly. And then verse 16 he describes a little bit more for, uh, which is almost a repeat of verse 16, so I just put verse 16 in there. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. It seems as if Isaiah speaks here of two separate events and two separate individuals. Do you see the problem? Uh, that kind of thing happens um, over and over in scripture, in, in prophecy. Now, verse 16, let's go to verse 16. You see it up on your screens. It spoke of a sign relevant to King Ahaz's immediate problem. But verse 14 seems to be speaking about someone and something else, for he speaks about a virgin. Now, Ahaz had a wife. She was clearly not a virgin. Isaiah had a wife. She was clearly not a virgin. So it can't... It, it can't be that. It's got to be somebody else. And the son that it's going to be produced is Emmanuel, which means God, that's what he's going to be called, which means God with us. So we, it's like we got two different things being talked about in one place. Do you see that? Has that confused you before? Uh, yeah, lots of people. <laughs> now, here's... Here's the answer. Isaiah 8 and 9 explain the mystery of Isaiah 7. Isaiah 8 is the, talks about the son born to Isaiah named Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, who, was predict, who predicted the destruction of the alliance and preservation of the Davidic dynasty. That is the immediate sign answer for the problem that Ahaz was facing with Judah. Does that make sense? Are, are you with me so far? He needs a sign that he's going to be delivered from these two kings. True? He needs an immediate sign. A sign 500 years from now isn't going to help him. Is that true? Yeah. He needs a sign now that he's about to be delivered. That's what chapter 8 is about. Chapter 9, on the other hand, uh, is about a son born, Emmanuel, whose names include things like, I mean, you know verse 6, 9 verse 6, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and exactly, we all know that. Now, the, there he's explaining this other verse, verse, um, uh, verse um, uh, 14, okay? So he, he takes them apart and he does that. Now, uh, 
I, we're going to come to that in just a minute. Now, some say the word translated virgin here could be a woman of marriageable age, but not necessarily a virgin. Well, it's not true. Because the word here, translated virgin, can be denoted by two different Hebrew words. Bethula, a woman of marriageable age, not necessarily a virgin, and Alma, and, which is always a virgin. That's the word Isaiah chose, and the Greek translators, when they picked up and translated it, understood it that way and used the word parthenos uh, with a definite article meaning the virgin. There was no, it was unequivocal, okay? Now, let's go back to this problem. Why, would, why does he mix them up like this? I mean, it makes it confusing uh, to us. It's just because we don't, un, uh, we don't understand how they did it. Once you understand, then suddenly everything opens up. Many prophe prophecies contain both a near partial and a distant or far and complete fulfillment in them. And there's a good reason for it. Uh, 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 so why would God combine them like this? Well, God was not only predicting what was going to happen in the future, he was also, he was as, as mightily working his promised plan out in the everyday course of events that would lead to the future. Does that make sense? Did, did you get what I just said? So, for example, remember I said the dynasty of David was being threatened? So he's going to fix that now. Because the Davidic dynasty was under threat, he's going to fix it now. But guess what? He's going to fix it forever in the future with the final Davidic king. Ha! Does that make sense? You just nod just like this, even if you don't. <laughs> so he's, he's doing a, uh, these are, these near fulfillments are the steps which lead to the final one where the, Davidic, the great final Davidic king ends up. And that's what he's doing. Okay. Uh, I'm glad, I'm glad that you got it. And I'm taking that by faith. So he hinted the virgin birth in Genesis 3.15. It was explicitly predicted by Isaiah, and now finally it was fulfilled in Jesus. Hundreds of years after Isaiah's prophecy, an angel said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary, your wife, for which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's very significant. It's got to be, this is, this is somebody else being conceived here. This isn't a normal human being because they would be conceived of a man. She will bear a son, and you will call his name? Jesus. And Matthew then went on to say that this fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. He said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. That's Isaiah he's talking about. The virgin will be with a child, will give birth to a son, and they will call his name? Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is the seed promised to Eve and to Abraham. Aha! That's wonderful, isn't it? And everything that goes with it. All right. The second thing, Jesus was sacrificed to atone for sins that would make people righteous. Daniel, a captive in the Babylonian exile, was studying the prophecy by Jeremiah and realized that the exile was coming to an end in Daniel 9. You can read it there. But here is the Isaiah passage that he was studying. I mean, the prophets were studying the prophets. <laughs> Jeremiah was before Daniel. So anyway, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon how many years? Right, 70 years. And did they come back after that? Yes, they did. A remnant did. Remember we talked about that. Daniel turned to fasting and prayer repenting on behalf of Israel for all her sins and pleading for God to have mercy on them. But God's answer through Daniel went way, or through Gabriel, I should say, went way beyond what Daniel anticipated. God promised an atonement. Daniel was just saying, would you forgive us, please, for what we've done so we can get back into the land after 70 years. That's what Daniel was praying. God says to Gabriel, go down there and tell him I'm going to do way more than that. 
I'm going to offer the final, uh, I'm going to tell them about a final sacrifice that's going to be made that's going to atone for sins. Isaiah had already talked about that. Isaiah even preceded Jeremiah, was some, somewhat contemporary, but Daniel would have known Isaiah too. Remember Isaiah 53? About the suffering servant, the, the one who's going to be crucified and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and now God says to, to Gabriel, tell Daniel that I'm going to talk to him about when it's going to happen. Is that incredible? I'm going to give him the timing of this thing until Messiah, the prince, he says, um, yeah, uh, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring it to everlasting righteousness. There it is. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, remember decree, until Messiah the Prince comes, there will be how many weeks? Help me. Yeah, it's in, it's in that beautiful color there that I, I gave you. It's in how many weeks? And? Okay, very good. In the last sermon, hang on to that for a sec. In the last sermon, we learned that Isaiah and Ezekiel both said that Messiah would make atonement in order to make the people what? Yes, to make them righteous. Daniel agreed, saying there would, uh, that it would happen when Messiah would arrive. He was the one who was going to do it. So for the Jews, a week referred to either a week of days or a week of years. For example, in Leviticus 25.8, you can just write that down. I just can't get it. There's no time for it, okay? So trust me on this one, okay? But write it down, Leviticus 25.8, seven Sabbaths of years. Anyway, I, what I want you to see now is that, we're, that, that the, the time of Messiah, Jesus' atonement. 444 was the uh, time when the Persian king, Artaxerxes I, said to Nehemiah, he decreed, he issued a decree, saying you can go back, the, uh, and the temple had already been done, but the, you can go back and fix the walls and build the city. Remember the Nehemiah story? And that was 444. Now, seven weeks of years is how many years? 49 years. That's how long it took to do it, okay? The time to rebuild Jerusalem from the time of the decree. Then there's the 62 year, uh, weeks or years, uh, 62 weeks of years, which would be 434 years. Are you following me so far? Weeks of years, yes. That's the time after the city is rebuilt, after those 49 years. Then there's another four, 62 weeks or 434 years until Messiah comes. 49 plus 434 equals how many years? 483. However, those were Jewish years. They had 360 days in their calendar. If you, trans, uh, if, if you translate that to solar years, the way we do, 365 days, you come up with 476 years. If you add 476 to 444 BC, you end up at 333 AD. And specifically, Nisan 10, which is our March 30th, 33 AD. Guess what happened on March 30th, 33 AD? Jesus presented himself in Jerusalem as their king on Palm Sunday, five days before he was crucified. Is that unbelievable? Unbelievable. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you! What is he? What is he? Do you see how important these words are now? You don't just skim over them anymore, right? He's what? He's righteous and having. That means he's bringing with him the ability to make them righteous too. He's the king, the righteous king, and he's coming to make them righteous. Gentle and riding on a? 
full of a donkey. John described how this prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus. So they took branches of palm, branch, uh, palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Come on, give me a Hosanna. You know, that's sort of. <laughs> Blessed is, good practice for when he comes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it was written. Daniel went on to add uh, another startling detail about the Messiah. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be what? Cut off. That's the exact same word that Isaiah used for the suffering servant to die. He was cut off and have nothing. Daniel says that after his arrival, Messiah will then be cut off or killed. And just five days after the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, the religious leaders incited a mob and they crucified him on April 3rd, 33 A.D. Isaiah had said the servant would be crucified and die for his people. My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up. That's crucifixion. And, and you'll see it in the next verse. I'm going to show you in just a sec. So hang on to that. And highly exalted. He was cut off, off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. There's that cut off again. Using the same terminology, Jesus said he would die by crucifixion. John chapter 12. Listen to this. And I, when I am, what? Lifted up. That's Isaiah 52, 13. Uh, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And, of course, in his sacrifice, Jesus fulfilled many prophecies he had no control over. I just don't have time to go down that road. There's so many things we could talk about. Jesus demonstrated that he, he, not, he, he taught it, he explained it, he predicted it, and he demonstrated that he was the suffering servant of Isaiah who came to atone for all our sin. Amen and amen. True? We're not done. Let's talk about signs leading up to Jesus' return. I said I can only pick a couple of things here today. Redemption is not only completed when Jesus returns, uh, or is only completed when Jesus returns to crush the serpent and all his followers, because that's what Genesis, Genesis 13, 3.15 said. And then rules over the nations from Jerusalem. Just three days before his crucifixion, Jesus and his disciples left the temple and the city through the eastern gate, which is closed today. Crossed the Kidron Valley and ascended the Mount of Olives where they sat down. His disciples turned to him and asked, Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the what? Sign of your coming and the corresponding end of the age. When teaching in the temple that day, Jesus had already indicated two conditions that would have to be met before he would return. Number one, Israel would be saved. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is in chapter 23, end of chapter 23, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not, what? You were not? Oh. Oh. Do we have that verse or not? No, yeah, the next one, yeah, there we go. Okay, let's try that again. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood in her wings, under her wings, and you were not, what? Willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, What? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they're welcoming him. They're saved. And I'll prove it a little bit more in a moment. Clearly, he won't return to rule until Israel is saved. <laughs> That's a whole topic. 
This affirms the promise to Abraham of a what? Great, righteous nation. Jesus is committed to that. Not just the covenants were that. Jesus is the, the, he is the, pers- the mediator of those covenants and he is completely committed to making them a great nation. That has never happened. That's coming. Do you see why? Uh, uh, lots of people in the church today don't think Israel has a place in God's economy from here on in. The church has replaced that. Many in the church are teaching that. And if you don't understand what the Old Testament covenants are saying, then you can easily get fooled by that. True? That's why we're doing this. <laughs> okay, number two, sign number two. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is a city. He was saying that the city wouldn't see him again until they were saved. In other words, the people of Jerusalem would be in Jerusalem, in the land. You can't be in Jerusalem and not be in the land. True? Which means Jesus is not only committed to making him a great nation of the Abrahamic covenant, he's also committed that they will be in the... Yeah, he's the mediator of the covenants. He's the one that's going to pull it off. He's that seed king that was going to pull it off. And number three, sitting on the Mount of Olives, Jesus added two more signs. The gospel is preached to the whole world. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world. As a testimony to all nations, and then what? That's one of the great signs of the Matthew 24, 25, the Olivet uh, uh, Discourse. One of the great signs. It has to spread through the whole world. And this affirms the gospel, of, that's the gospel of the kingdom of heaven has to be proclaimed. This affirms the promise to Abraham of what? Blessing to the nations. The mediator of the covenant is committed to fulfilling those promises he made to Abraham and to and to David and, and in the New Covenant and so on and so forth. And then, of course, the, sign, the fourth sign is the Great Tribulation, the abomination of desolation, verse 15, would trigger the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen, and that's where we're headed. Matthew 24, 21 says, then there will be a great tribulation after the abomination of, of uh, desolation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Now, here's the significance of the first three signs that we just looked at. Jesus was committed to the fulfillment of the covenants. The great righteous nation, land, and blessing to the nations. Finally, here's my last point, last piece that we can, that we can look at today. And I'm really excited about this. <laughs> the sign of Jesus' second coming as king. Jesus said that the end of the tribulation will be marked by dramatic celestial signs. That's in verse 29 of Matthew 24. And then, he says, he will appear. Then will appear, after those celestial signs, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth or land, will mourn, and they will, or Israel, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, I'm going to whet your appetite <laughs> for a series that you really, a short series that should be uh, preached. It's on the Son of Man. Um, Jesus called him, referred to himself, that his preferred designation was the Son of Man. Do you know how many times he used it? 78 times it's in the Gospels. Do you know how many times he referred to himself as the Messiah? 11 times. Son of God only five times. Now others uh, called him Messiah 49 times, but nobody else called him Son of Man. Nobody. He did 78 times. Now, that's, <laughs> there's a story there, and we should unpack that sometime. Come back to this verse and just unpack that. But for now, just remember, you can remember that. 
Jesus reaffirms his commitment to the salvation of Israel. That's the first thing he did in this verse. He says, it says the tribes of the earth. Now, this verse is often assumed to refer to the mourning of the nations, you know, that they're mourning when, uh, because of the judgments of Jesus. It's not, it's not true. Here, Jesus is, uh, although that is true, they, they will mourn when they see him. Uh, that there's other passages, but that's not what he's talking about here. Zechariah, uh, he, he's, he's referring to an end event predicted by Zechariah. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for what? Mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, think about this, this is God writing. This is God speaking through Zechariah. God is saying that. Me whom they have pierced, they shall, what? Mourn for him and weep bitterly over him. Zechariah predicted a day when Israel would see Jesus again, recognizing him as the one crucified by them and for them. This is a day of deep repentance and mourning, for it says that God will pour on them a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. This is not the mourning of, you know, the mourning that takes place, yeah, I got caught. No, no, this is deep, deep repentance. Salvation. This describes the salvation that's coming to the nation of Israel when they will be made righteous. It's phenomenal. The word tribes there in Matthew 24, 30 is not the usual word used for the nations, which would be ethnos. It's phili, correctly translated as tribes. He's literally talking about the tribes of Israel. And Jesus is saying that all Israel will repent and be saved. Again, we see his commitment to one of the key covenant promises. Second, Jesus revealed the sign of his personal appearance. Now, in verses 23 to 26 of Matthew 24, he had already <clears throat> warned that there would be many false Christs and false prophets. And if you read that section, you will notice he'll say, if, if, if somebody comes here and they say, oh, he's out there in the desert, don't do it. Don't, don't go out there. If, if, they, if, he, if, if somebody says, he's in the inner room, don't go out there. He says, as lightning that comes from the east is seen in the west. That's how he's going to be seen. In other words, he'll be seen by all. He won't be hidden. Now, that's, that's the first thing. But he revealed a sign that would prevent us from being deceived. And all believers need to know this a sign. The Son of Man is going to come on. He's going to come on what? He's going to come on? Yeah, the clouds of heaven. He's going to. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to prove that. This detail is taken from Daniel 7.13. In my vision at night... So Jesus was, mix, uh, was taking excerpts from two prophecies, one from Zechariah 12 and here from Daniel chapter 7. Um, and it, it says, In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Now, <laughs> I wish I had time. But anyway, it, this is what he's referring to here. He calls himself Son of Man 78 times in the Gospels. He's always having them think about Daniel 7. And the people know, in fact, he was executed for being, calling himself the Son of Man. They knew what he meant by that. Because this is a divine man. It's a, it, there's only two places in the Old Testament where you see a father, son, ancient of days, and son of man together. Two Jehovah's, if you like. <laughs> There's one God, but two manifestations, that's what I mean, of Jehovah in one place. Daniel 7 is one of them. The other one is Psalm uh, 110. The Lord said to my Lord. Remember we looked at that passage? And he's coming on clouds. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Now, why is it important to note that Jesus is quoting this? Because Daniel went on to say that the Son of Man would be given an eternal kingdom to rule over all peoples and nations. 
And to him was given, the very next verse, 14, to him was given what? Dominion. Next verse. And to him was given what? And, and uh, that all peoples, nations, and language, languages should serve him. Wow. This is the same person as the Messianic king. And he's called the son, son of man here. And the son of man is a title of deity. He's God. He approaches the ancient days, but that's another topic. Jesus had demonstrated that he was a suffering servant when he died, and now Jesus would demonstrate that he was the Son of Man. I didn't say that he would explain that. He had explained it many times, and he had taught it many times. Jesus was about to demonstrate that he was the Son of Man that was going to come back in his glory. You say, how is that possible? <laughs> how can he do that before he actually comes back in his glory? I'll show you. I'm glad you asked. Here's how he would do it. After his resurrection, Jesus explained the kingdom of heaven for 40 days. And when he ascended into heaven, and then he ascended into heaven. Remember? And that's how Acts 1 begins. Acts 1 begins with Jesus taught them about the kingdom for 40 days. You can see it in verse 1. And um, then it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The disciples gazed at Jesus as he ascended into heaven. And then two angels standing nearby said to him, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus had just ascended bodily as a man in the clouds. And now the angel said he would return in the exact same way with clouds. This was exactly what Daniel 7 had said. Jesus had demonstrated that he was the suffering servant. He died and then he rose again. And now in his ascension, oh, we don't pay. I haven't paid enough attention to the ascension. Jesus now demonstrated he was the Son of Man or the Messianic King that was going to come back and rule and reign, judge and crush the serpent and his evil followers. And uh, the disciples saw him return as the, uh, to the Ancient of Days on clouds. And his ascension on the clouds was an earnest guarantee guaranteeing that he would ride the clouds one more time upon his return. The angels said that. He's coming back bodily as the divine son of man, God as man, to crush the serpent and all those who persist in their evil. Israel will be saved, and then Jesus, the son of man, will set up his literal kingdom in Jerusalem from which he will reign over the nations forever and ever. And there will be peace forevermore. That's where this is all headed. This grand story is the true newspaper. Not what you watch on television. What, you, what we've been reading and studying together. That is the true newspaper of what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen. That's why we have to know it. Is that true? Now, we end the series on that high note, and the question is what to do in the meantime. That's what the disciples were wondering. When, are you going to, at this time, they asked this question, verse 6, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. And the very next thing he said was this. Get this. He said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise 
of the Spirit. And I want you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the... So that he, when he comes back and sets up his kingdom, it's, that's the blessing to the nations because he wants to rule and he will rule, as we found out from Daniel, over the, over the nations and his people. Then in keeping with the new uh, covenant promise, he poured out his spirit, enabling them to bless the nations with the gospel of the kingdom. And once this kingdom has, or this gospel has penetrated and saved people from all nations and all ethnic groups, Jesus, the seed, king, servant, son of man, will return to reign over the nations. So our heart posture is that we're gazing into the heavens. That's our heart posture. Eagerly awaiting his return, even as John in Revelation said, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the heart posture. And with our hands, we are busy discipling the nations until he returns so that he has a people that he can rule and reign forevermore. Amen? That's the end of the story, part one. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for how you're opening your word to us so we can understand it, but not just understand it, so we can align our hearts and our wills and our actions with your plan. We commit ourselves to doing that, and we say together in our hearts, Oh, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come quickly. We long for your return. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>